0: Just off the coast of North Carolina, in the Atlantic Ocean, lies a group of barrier islands referred to as the Outer Banks. They're surrounded by dangerous reefs that were for centuries graveyards for ships that ran aground on the reefs and, and that were then battered by the ocean waves until the boats would splinter, come apart, and be demolished by the reefs and the waves, causing their precious cargo to be spilled out into the ocean and washed ashore. Opportunistic land pirates, cool phrase, that lived for decades on one of these islands developed a technique. Most of you have probably heard this story before. I hadn't. I read the past week as I was prepping for the sermon and couldn't pass it up. They developed a technique for assisting the winds the currents and the reefs in the wrecking of ships. These pirates became known simply as wreckers. They would hang a lantern on stormy nights on the neck of one of the wild horses that occupied several of the islands and lead the nag back and forth on the beach trying to mimic the light of a ship, hoping to trick a passing ship's captain into believing it was another ship. Making that captain feel safe if he was disoriented in a storm, if he moved toward the light, causing him to run aground on the nearby reefs and where his ship would be destroyed and his cargo would wash ashore to be recovered and eventually sold by the pirates. These wreckers caused the name of Nag's Head to be attached to this particular island in North Carolina and it's stuck today. The Bible writers describe three wreckers of human life that seek to steal, kill, and destroy, to use a Jesus phrase about them, as we try to navigate the stormy seas of this world for a few short years we're given to live on this planet. Let's talk about those three wreckers just a minute before we jump back into the story of Joseph. The first wrecker is our own sin nature, unfortunately, and we were born with it. Like it or not, we inherited what some biblical writers call simply flesh tendencies, or what C.S. Lewis calls a bent towards sin. We inherited it from our ancient ancestors. Ever since that epic failure back there in the garden, we inherited that tendency. Actually, before that epic failure in the garden, there was a cosmic rebellion going on, if you'll recall, that our ancient ancestors chose to join. That rebellion is still raging that started thousands and thousands of years ago, a rebellion against the creator and the sustainer of all creation. And we were born, even as an infant, with a tendency to join that rebellion, which always brings misery, suffering, loss, and death. There's lots of passages of scripture about this. One simple little statement by David after an epic failure in his life is Psalm 51.5. He just acknowledges it. Surely I was sinful at birth, even before birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, a truth. First record, our own sin nature. Second record, we live in a world system or a culture full of other people like us and have a sin nature. And that world system or that culture that's around us is being manipulated by evil spiritual forces. We as Western Christians don't think about that a lot. We don't like to think about that. Our culture, in its various expressions, is trying to, to use a Paul term, squeeze us into its mold. Romans 12, one and two, Paul spoke this or wrote this to the Roman church and to us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of such a great salvation, in view of the fact you have the Holy Spirit of the living God beating inside of you, in view of that, Offer your bodies daily as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I love to be singing songs like we sang this morning and be passionate emotionally about God. I'm not ashamed to display public affection for God. You know what? My life needs to line up with what I say and what I sing. Do not conform, Paul says, to the pattern of this world or this world system more accurately. Don't let the world system or the culture squeeze you into its mold. But be transformed by the regular renewing of your mind. He's talking about the word of God and the truth of God and the teachings of Jesus. Then you'll be able to test and approve what's going on around you. You'll be able to sift the cultural moment. His good, pleasing, and perfect will for you. Third wrecker. <laughs> I've already noted it, there are spiritual pirates, so to speak, on our spinning little island in this little cul-de-sac in the Milky Way galaxy, one of billions of galaxies in God's massive universe. And those spiritual pirates are constantly trying to lure you and me to destruction, like those pirates on nags head these spiritual forces of evil too are organized and intelligent and they want to steal kill and destroy your life and all your relationships and rob you of meaning and purpose and spiritual productivity and effectiveness three passages of scripture in point Jesus said this in John 10:10, 10, 10. speaking of those pirates, he says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Third time I've said that, I think. Jesus contrasts that to himself. He said, Jim, I've come to give you life and life to the fullest. And then Paul in Ephesians 6:10 through 12, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. For our struggle well, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against whose schemes the devil's schemes. He's got more than wild horses and his lanterns to work with. He's got thousands of years of destroying, stealing, and killing life from the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. For our struggle, and it is a struggle. It's a daily struggle. <laughs> Not every thought that pops into your head is your own sin nature. There are forces, spiritual forces, daily, moment by moment, seeking to manipulate you and destroy you. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I've quoted Paul. I've quoted Jesus. Why not one more? How about Peter? 1 Peter 5 eight. Be alert and of sober mind. He's talking about spiritually alert and of sober mind. You have an enemy and your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So with that backdrop in mind, now, open your Bibles if you have one, or your phone, or you can look on the screen. Don't be ashamed to bring a Bible to church, it's okay. It's all right. It's okay to bring it. I bring this big honky monster one because everybody can laugh at me and be embarrassed. Actually, I bring it because I can't see anything and I need the big print. But anyway, it's okay to bring a Bible to church. That was just a throw in for this morning. Genesis 39, one through 23, let's pick up the story. If you recall, all of us know the story of Joseph. He was a favored son of his daddy. Uh, He's the son of Jacob, one of the patriarchs. He's the great-grandson of Abraham. Being favored, as Lee noted last week and Kevin the week before, is not a good thing. It's a bad thing to be favored in this life by human beings that are, should not be showing favoritism one over another. We're gonna talk about the favor of God. That's something different and how you get that and God's sovereignty and discuss all that. But he was favored above his brothers for bad reasons, not because he was a bad person, because he was the son of a favored wife, which is a whole nother story. So let's pick it up. His brothers, because he was favored, because they were jealous, sold him into slavery. I won't go into the details of that, we've already covered it. And now he's been sold, we're gonna see this week, in Egypt by slave traders to a guy. Verse one, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, Potiphar an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials. This is a high-ranking official in one of the most powerful kingdoms in the world at that time, Egypt. He's the captain of the guard. The phrase is disputed about exactly what that means. It probably literally means he's in charge of a large military force, but it may mean the palace guard and Josephus, not even a biblical uh, writer, but extra biblical writer thinks, and others think, other rabbis think that he also raised all of Pharaoh's food for him. Don't know that for sure, but he had a lot of responsibility. We do know that he buys this guy named Joseph, is about seventeen years old from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there, and the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. You're going to see the phrase. Eight or nine times, the Lord was with Joseph. He's prospered. He's favored. He's blessed by God. Things like that lots of times in these 23 verses. Was it just God's sovereignty? Yes. Did Joseph steward that blessing well so that he deserved some of God's blessing and favor by the way he behaved? Obviously, he did. We're going to see that again today. How do you explain, Jim, the sovereignty of God and Joseph's part in this? I can't. I can just embrace it and I can do my part and we can do our part. More on that in a few minutes. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, it may have taken him a few months, it may have taken him a few years. We don't know how old Joseph is when this story unfolds. Probably, we're just guessing, around 20 It's going to be age 30 before he is elevated to the number two position in Egypt, if you know the rest of the story. So a decade or more will probably pass before that happens. And lots of other things will happen to Joseph, but I'm getting ahead in the story right now at about age 18, 19, 20, 21. He's been elevated, as we're going to see, to head of this influential Egyptian's household. When his master saw the Lord was with him, the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Potiphar's not stupid. Joseph found favor in his master's eyes and became his chief attendant. He moves literally into the house with him, probably has his own quarters. Potiphar put him in charge of his household. He entrusted everything to his care, everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of the household, and all they own, the Lord blessed the household. You see, when you're living right and God is blessing you, that blessing spills over even onto those around you. From the time he did this, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of the Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So what did Potiphar do? He just embraced the blessing. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, trouble begins. Prosperity and success always bring new problems and new temptations, even if you're a slave. We're gonna see. Joseph was well-built and handsome. He's in the prime of his life. He's intelligent. He's productive. He probably gets up early in the morning and works hard. That makes you an attractive person to anyone that around you. They want to be around you. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. That's pretty direct. She starts hitting on this young man. Obviously, she's got issues. We would need to send her to the Joshua Center. But they didn't have a Joshua Center, so let's keep going. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Joseph is trying to reason now with the woman. And by the way, this passage is used often to discuss, and we will discuss it, fleeing from sexual immorality. But there's a big part of this that Joseph can't flee from. He lives on the property, probably in the same house with this woman. This is a daily temptation, and it goes on and on. So he tries to reason with her and tries to avoid being around her. That's all he can do. My master's not concerned himself with anything in the house. And he says, no one is greater in this house than I am except him, my master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife, duh. How then could I do such a wicked thing? In Psalm 51, after David committed his terrible sin with Bathsheba, he said, my sin is against you and you only, God. And that's true in one sense, all sin is directed against God. But in a larger sense, in Joseph's case, the sin was directed against Uriah when he killed him, um, Uriah's going, felt like it was against me, I'm dead. Uh, Potiphar, he, Joseph recognizes this. There's a horizontal effect to my behavior and there's a vertical effect to my behavior. And yes, the vertical effect is primary and it's the key thing. And Joseph's gonna recognize that too. But he also recognizes it wouldn't be right It wouldn't, it would be wrong. There is a right and wrong. It would be against the ethos of God for me to betray this man who's blessed me so graciously. I'm not doing that. I won't do it. And it would be sin against God too. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. He's trying to avoid being and along with her. Verse 11, one day, He goes into the house to attend his duties. And none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw he'd left his cloak in her hand and run out, she gets really angry now. And her lust and her attraction for Joseph turns into hatred. She doesn't clear, clearly she doesn't like her husband. I don't know what's going on between them, but she doesn't like him. So now she's mad at Joseph, she's mad at him, she's angry, she's furious, she's spurned. So she starts to tell on Joseph and her husband to the household servants. This Hebrew has been brought to us, who by her husband, to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until her master got home Then told him the story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. I don't know that all of his anger is at Joseph. He probably realizes he's got to do something. And But he, if he really believed her, he would have killed Joseph, okay? I mean, this is Egypt. He's way up there. In fact, probably we'll see from the next chapter, the king's prison may even be attached to his home or nearby. He may even be over that. He could have killed this guy. Nobody would have said a thing. He's probably angry at his wife. He's probably angry about the whole circumstance. He's probably angry at Joseph for letting himself get put in this situation. He's definitely angry because he's about to lose the blessing when he sends Joseph off to prison. And he's starting to think about all this and he's really upset. So he takes Joseph, puts him in prison where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, here again, here again, God's favor is with him even in his tough, hard times. The Lord was with him, he showed him kindness, granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Now probably the prison warden got the scoop from Potiphar too. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those he held in the prison. Uh, I don't know how terrible the prison was compared to other prisons at that time. Somewhere else in scripture notes, he was thrown in a dungeon. But apparently he could move around fairly freely, but he had administrative responsibilities. We used to call that, I don't know if they still do or not, a trustee. He was like the head trustee of the prison, kind of under the warden. So the warden puts Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. He made him responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care again. Why? Because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Comments, thoughts, observations, and applications from the passage. Let's talk about temptation a minute. Temptation can come in many forms. I know there are four forms of temptation featured in the story. There may be more, but I'm going to highlight four. The first ones have been highlighted the last two weeks. I'll do it again. Defeat, failure, discouraging circumstances, and especially offenses by other people against you are all temptations to stay angry with God to 21st century term in the West, deconstruct your faith, to live in fear, to practice unforgiveness and embrace bitterness. All those are sins, by the way. What does Joseph do? Well, first of all, he keeps going from riches to rags. He's still on a steady downhill slope in his life from riches to rags so far in this story because of other people's offenses against him. He was tempted severely to blame God and grow bitter, but he didn't. Second form of temptation that Joseph faced, I've already mentioned it, the constant daily battle with what I'm gonna call the sins of the flesh. And I'm gonna list some. This is gonna hit almost all of us. It's gonna hit most of us in the room. Laziness. What are the sins of the flesh? These aren't all Joseph's sins, but there is that constant Daily temptation to just give in to our own sin nature, laziness, gluttony, sexual promiscuity, or sexual deviation of any type from God's standard, substance abuse, pride, jealousy, envy, lying, manipulating other people, control issues. In this portion of the historical account of Joseph's life, we see Joseph's daily struggle was sexual temptation. For a young man in the prime of his life, let's be real, with no legitimate outlet for his sexual urges, this was a constant daily battle, it was. And he couldn't just flee from this daily struggle. He could try to reason with Potiphar's wife, he could try to avoid her, he did all that, but he couldn't leave, he was a slave. Number three. Third form of temptation in the story, the sudden unexpected temptation that catches you off guard. When you can, it's best to flee, and you can't always, to flee from this, especially if it's sexual in nature. In this case, Joseph simply fled. Fourth form of temptation Joseph faced in this passage, I've noted this already too, success. Success and prosperity in any form, even if you're a slave or a prisoner, always brings new temptations with it like pride. It's all pride's always there lurking. Or in this case, the sexual advances of another person who is attracted to you because of your success. Joseph battled the fruit of success. Two suggestions while we're on the temptation topic. Settle it in advance that the consequences of resisting temptation are not as great, and there can be consequences, there were for Joseph, are not as great as the consequences of giving in to it. The Old Testament particularly is full of stories of the consequences of moral failure. I've already mentioned one, I'll mention it again, David and Bathsheba. Consequences for David, death of a child, incest in his family, murder in his family, the betrayal of a son, the loss of his kingship, and so on and so forth. And history, by the way, not just biblical history, history is littered with the carnage of sin choices. Just look around. Learn from other people's mistakes. Number two, put structures and disciplines in your life that connects you deeply and intimately to God. It will help you avoid illicit intimacy as well as lots of other temptations to sin. Some verses that may help, I'll give you two. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Don't you know, Jim, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. What was the price? The precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, honor God with your body. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. So if you think you're standing firm, Jim, be careful you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted more than you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will provide a way out so you can endure it. Enough on temptation. I know some of you are feeling terrible right now because you've blown it, maybe in this area, maybe in other areas in your life, or maybe you're blowing it right now. And I'll get to that. There's grace and mercy in time of need. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But let's keep going. Second thing I would note from this, it's already been noted by Lee and Kevin, is this whole idea of a victim spirit. Is Joseph a victim? Absolutely. But You know what? He refuses to embrace what I would call a victim spirit. 1 Peter 2, 20 through 21, good advice. How is it to your credit if you receive punishment of beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, This is commendable before God. To this you were called because God, Christ, suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Third thing let's talk about in the passage. This is a quick one. There's plenty of times in your life when it's possible to please both God and people. I would say the majority of times it is. But there are times when it's not. It's not possible to please both God and people and you have to choose. Fourth thing to talk about in the passage and the passage really doesn't raise this but the Bible does. What if you fail? What if you blow it or have blown it? And all of us have in some way, form or fashion. Well, from scripture, I'll give you six things to do. Number one, duh, confess your sin. Number two, repent. Repent. Change your behavior as an act of your will, whatever that takes. Number three, pray for mercy. Number four, if it's possible, and it's not always possible, make restitution if there was a horizontal effect in someone's life. Make restitution and ask forgiveness of others you've offended. Number five, and any good counselor worth their salt will tell you this. When you're in the mess, whether you create it or not, particularly though if you created it through your poor choices, do the next right thing and just keep doing the next right thing and keep doing the next right thing until you get out of the mess. It may take a while, but what are your options? Keep doing the next right thing. Number six, again, I'll say this maybe a third time in a minute. This is the second time I think I've said it. Put structures and disciplines in your life that connect you more deeply to God and keep you away from sin. I can't overemphasize that. That's self-discipline. We have this promise in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. That doesn't mean there won't be consequences coming from your bad choices, but God loves you. And he wants to start over with you every day. Next point. We're all called to live a life of moral integrity regardless of the cost. On this blessing thing, do you think that Jesus, Paul, and Peter, let's talk about those three just for a minute, were favored by God? Do you think the anointing and the favor and the blessing of God were on those three guys? Absolutely. Well, what happened to all three of them? <laughs> this kind of picks for a print, a, a, a pinprick in the balloon of prosperity theology. Jesus was crucified. Paul was imprisoned numerous times and finally beheaded. He was beaten to death nearly more than one time. Peter, by Christian tradition, was crucified too, upside down. So what are you saying What I'm saying is, blessing and favor of God don't always result in great happy endings like we're gonna see in this story with Joseph. And along the way, it didn't always result in Joseph's life in great things happening. It was not always an upward trajectory for him. Now, Back to this structures and disciplines thing. Joseph had to have had structures and disciplines in his life that helped him live a life of integrity and develop a deep relationship with God. We're not told exactly in this story what they look like. I wish we were. In Daniel's life, another incredibly righteous guy from the Old Testament stories, we know he prayed and fasted regularly. In David's life, we know that he worshiped regularly. All three men obviously knew the moral standards recorded in portions of the Old Testament they had access to. They had to have read and been familiar with that and memorized it. It's clear that Joseph knew God's value system. So he had to have spent time, lots of time with God to know his character and his values. In order to make the statement that sleeping with Potiphar's wife was a sin against God, not just Potiphar, Joseph, don't miss this, had to have had a deep relationship with God and he was concerned about jeopardizing that relationship if he made a bad choice and we should be too. Let's talk about, lastly, the blessing or the favor of God. I always say this, and I don't mean it to sound arrogant, but it's true. There is no substitute for the favor, the blessing or anointing of God. There's nothing like it. But if you find yourself in any area of life highly favored by God, again, it doesn't insulate you from temptation or suffering, as we've noted. Jesus said, as recorded in John 16, one of those promises nobody likes to claim, in this world, Jim, you will have trouble. And all of us that know Jesus personally, though, Think about this. You think, I'm not favored. I'm not anointed. Think about this. You have inside of you, if you really know Jesus intimately and personally as your Lord and your Savior, you have inside of you access to the most powerful blessing in the universe, the Holy Spirit of the Living God. And I would encourage you to steward that blessing. He's with us at all times. God is with us. That's no small thing. It's clearly evidence of the favor of God on your life, regardless of your circumstances. I want to point out now some general principles from the Old and New Testament about the favor and the blessing of God. Number one, God is looking to bless and empower in special ways those who have a heart for him. The Bible's clear on this. I'll read you one passage of scripture. It's 2 Chronicles sixteen nine. It says, the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to bless or strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. If you want other examples, go to Job chapter one. It's a little get a little weird, a little scary in Job, but it's clear that what I'm saying is true. Number two. You can invite the favor of God on you by the way you live your life. If you want more of God's favor, make every effort. That's your part. Make every effort to live a life of integrity. Strive to live by the values Jesus set out for you to live by. Two passages of scripture. There's lots of them. Let's pick these out in point. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, first, Paul writing to a church in Ephesus. He's writing, by the way, from prison when he talks about this. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Worthy of the blessing, I would say, you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort. Wow, sounds like we've got a part to play in this when he tells us to make every effort. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Second Peter one, five through eight, Peter this time. For this very reason, make every effort. He's saying the exact same thing. We have a part to play. To add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control. One of the fruits of the Spirit again, self-control, perseverance, to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection or love. For if you possess these qualities, in increasing measure. You don't get just zapped with them. you got to participate with the Holy Spirit of the living God in this sanctification process to use a big theological term. They will keep you from being and I don't want to be this. Ineffective and unproductive spiritually. Do you want to be that? Not me. Don't you, like Paul, want to stand before him someday and hear him say these words to you? Well done, good and faithful servant. I do. They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let God know, thirdly, in prayer. Let God know in prayer. You strongly desire and need his favor. We sang a song earlier. I didn't know Tim was going to pick it. <laughs> a few years ago, I adopted some words that song as a new spiritual discipline and habit in my life. I try to do it every day, multiple times a day, whether things are going well or not so well. You just say these words back to God. I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. I want his anointing. I want his favor on my life on my home, my ministry, my family, my marriage, my work, and my business, my relationships, my church, and I'm gonna keep on asking him for it. Let him know all the while I depend on him, but willing to work my guts out to do my part. Here's another prayer you can pray. Psalm ninety seventeen. May your favor, the favor of the Lord our God, rest on us. Establish the works of our hands, yes, Lord, establish the works of our hand. It's okay to pray that. Fourthly, and this is just practical advice from Scripture, be faithful in the small things and the little things of life so that he can trust you with bigger things if he chooses. Jesus said this in Luke sixteen ten: Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So now I am gonna close by simply stating, reading the words of a modern day psalm that we're going to then sing. I want us to close by saturating our minds and our spirits with the words of this popular song. We all need to hear it. I love the song, and I know it, I'm sure all of you do too. I love you, Lord, for your mercies never fail me. In all my days, I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, I'm gonna sing of the goodness of God. In all my life, you have been faithful. In all my life, you've been so, so good. And with every breath that I am able, I'm gonna sing of the goodness of God. I love your voice. You've led me through the fire. In the darkest nights, you're close like no other. I've known you as a father, and I've known you as a friend. And I have lived in the goodness of God. In all my life, you have been faithful. In all my life, you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. Let's stand and sing it.